HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Heritage Radio Network on Tour is made possible by the support of the Julia Child Foundation. We're entering the final act, really, of the summit. Um, I, I didn't realize until I put all of the pieces today together that our theme for today is provocation, really. Uh, we began uh, with Caleb Harper provoking us to think about things we don't even, can't even imagine, let alone realize that are happening. Uh, and we have, throughout the morning, had an opportunity to be provoked uh, and to think provocatively about uh, individuals with real issues, uh, with real aspirations, uh, some of them having nothing at all to do with food, perhaps, but, but certainly people who need to eat. Uh, we're going to close today with two further provocations, and these, are hoped, uh, these we hope will ex- expand our minds even further and leave us uh, with new perspectives on this notion of the consumer. Someone who has been traveling this country provoking people to think differently uh, in so many different ways around and through food is Tunde Wei. He's a Nigerian cook, a writer, an activist who moved to the United States when he was 16. He's been exploring issues of race and immigration and gentrification with a series of dinners called Blackness in America and also a series called 1882. I was fortunate to participate in one of those dinners in Philadelphia, and I, we've often prided ourselves with this conference by uh, making people feel a little uncomfortable when they leave, hopeful and optimistic, but uncomfortable. Well, I've never felt more uncomfortable than having left that blackness dinner because of reasons I think you're about to hear. Uh, Tunde is an eloquent speaker, an academic, a very talented cook, and we're very fortunate to welcome him to the stage. Please, Tunde Wei. Thank you guys for having me here. I appreciate it. Um, I want to thank uh, Mitchell and Ashley especially for making me here possible. Um, My flights were canceled and she made it happen, so thank you. Um, I'm not sure if anybody has been here and started with a song, but uh, I want to, if that's okay. So can we all sing together? That was not a rhetorical question. That's real. All right. So I'm going to... Clap, and you guys just join me. See rogue by, see rogue by, so by, so by. Alama de wuye, alama de wuye, de wuye, de wuye. O sibo game around, o sibo game around, o game around, o game around. Akpana panubi, akpana panubi, panubi, panubi. 
Thank you. Um, that song is uh, from my mother's childhood. She taught me the song when I was a kid. And um, my mom is from Nigeria, the Delta area. And uh, there are a bunch of tribes in that sort of like situation. One of the tribes are Urobo. And they have a, a poetic form wherein the um, reciter critiques himself as a way to critique um, society. And the idea is that you can't change anything until you purge yourself, right? So I'm going to be here in front of you uh, purging myself first. <clears throat> I started my dinner series um, in the fall, uh, sorry, in the, in the spring of 2016 as uh, a response to the then publicized killings of unarmed black, um, black folks. And um, I moved here from Nigeria. I'm black, as you guys can see. Uh, but being Nigerian and being black is different from being American and being black. There's a different sort of like historical um, context. And so I started this dinner series to understand for myself what blackness meant in America when in America blackness had been um, politicized. And so this sort of like inquiry into blackness very quickly went from that to a query of white supremacy, which is this thing, this force that has continuously um, subjugated people of color. And in doing these dinners, what I came to realize was that I was developing a very healthy um, pessimism. I didn't feel like racial reconciliation was possible. Um, because I would do, I would, I would do these uh, very simple tests. I would ask folks in, in the room, in a room where they weren't obligated to give anything, I would say, hypothetically, you know, we understand that we live in a, a zero-sum world, and the more people get, the less other people receive, and that historically this country um, has been built on white supremacy, and that is a power that comes from the exploitation of people of color. So, without you know, any sort of duress, what are folks willing to give up? And uh, the answer was usually nothing. And so I just, I would do the dinners and I would just get more and more um, sort of pessimistic. And I wanted to understand for myself why this pessimism bothered me. And um, sort of in examining my own life and my own um, reality, I came to see myself as in a sense, the analog of whiteness and white supremacy that I was critiquing in my own relationships as a man, because that's what I am, uh, even though sometimes I act like a boy, but as a man, I, I very slowly and unfortunately realized that my uh, relationships have been fraught um, with patriarchy and misogyny, and I would go into detail, but my wife is, she's watching this uh, live stream, so <laughs> I don't want to say all that. Um, but that re realization was the basis of my pessimism, because despite um, knowing that I embody this privilege, and not just privilege in, uh, in an antiseptic sense, but privilege in a destructive sense, uh, one that um, creates 
tension and 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 havoc in my relationships, I I still find it difficult to change. You know because it feels good to get what I want when I want to. So even though I know like intellectually, emotionally that um, I should change and I should be different, um, I find it difficult. And this was this is the this was like the basis of the pessimism that I felt ar- around race in America. Um, because I identified myself as the problem. So why am I saying all this stuff when we're talking about, uh, what's the theme of the conference? Consuming power. Um, So I think there are two ways to read the theme, right? Um, And I missed the conference, uh, my apologies. But I'm assuming that the first read is probably what was, uh, what has been spoken about here. It's like, we are consumers, we have great uh, um, transactional power, and we can use this power for good. We can change the world. Um, and in this frame, like, we see ourselves as the protagonists. And this is, this is sweet. But then when I just like, said the, the words over and over again, a different read came up, consuming power. And when you read it that way, then the idea shifts, and then we are consumers of power. And the reason why we consume is to maintain power, is to accumulate power. Um, And in this read, we are the um, protagonists, the villains. And in my own personal reflection, my understanding has been that to create change, to create transformation, that we can't do this, you know, thing that people say we should do is imagine ourselves in the other person's shoes. Those other person's shoes have been filled. We need to imagine ourselves in our own shoes and understand that we are the problem, that we are the villain. And so when we think about, um, when we think about food and we think about consuming food and we think about all of the, um, the, the, the inputs that go into that. We think about land. Land that was appropriated, taken from indigenous peoples and then tilled by enslaved peoples and then unevenly distributed and now commercially farmed. Or we think about labor that has always been precarious and underpaid um, and capital, which has been deployed to fund these products that we consume, but its deployment is only focused exclusively on profit at the expense of people and the planet, then we have to like come to this place that says consumption is not a virtue. Consumption is not righteous. And in fact, consumption can only be at best a compromise. It's a compromise that we've made because we live in a place, in a society where we have to sort of like do certain things. Um, we have to shop. We have to eat. Um, but then there has to be, I guess, a way to move away from despair, to move away from pessimism. Um, and this is, I guess, where I am personally and where um, maybe I'm, I'm encouraging us to be, is to move, to move from despair, we have to think, away from consumption and to contribution. And, you know, I, I guess that sounds pithy to say, but I think there's a, there's a way to actualize that. And we have to think not of what we can take, 
but what we can give. And give specifically by giving up. Because I think the only way that we change things, the only way that we can transform things away from this idea, which is problematic, that when we consume, uh, we can somehow change, which is not true. Because when we consume, all we're doing is reinforcing the, the, the tyranny that already exists. What we have to do is give up power. The only way that things can change is if power changes hands. And power has to change hands to people who have been historically dispossessed. And those people who uh, the transfer is made to have to be working on alternate and inclusive um, modes of, um, of production, of reproduction, of contribution. Um, I used to, a long, long time ago, practice um, Buddhism. And there's, um, there's this phrase that has stuck with me. It is consistency from beginning to end. And I think that we are comfortable with the idea of consumption being a tool for change um, because, like I said, it reinforces this idea of the protagonist that is us. But if we look at our choices and we understand that, yes, we do, you know, we buy organically or we source our foods from our restaurants from the closest, you know, smallest, most eco-friendly farm, you know, but yet our generosity doesn't apply to education, right? That we can comfortably source food locally but still have our, our children educated in, seg in segregated schools. That we can say Black Lives Matter but are unconcerned with the racial wealth disparity in this country Unconcerned beyond just saying I'm concerned, but unconcerned because we don't do anything about it. So what this means is that we are not, we don't actually believe that um, consumption changes, changes anything. We believe that consumption reinforces what we have, and we want to keep what we have. But if we really want to change, and I think that's what we're all here for, then we have to give that shit up. And um, the way to give that shit up is to give power to, again, folks who have historically been dispossessed, not as charity, um, not even as restitution, but as the only way to make what we want, which is you know, a healthy co um, community, more sustainable and viable. So thank you very much for letting me speak. session of this summit. Thank you, Tunde, for a wonderful, inspiring, um, we've used the word mindfulness here a lot. I think if I was counting words and adding up which word was said the most in public, I think besides things like and, but, you, me, I think mindful and mindfulness would, would float up to the top of the list. Um, so thank you for uh, allowing us also to increase our mindfulness. And um, so now I am going to introduce uh, John Alexander. Uh, John, as you will hear, is uh, from the UK. John, after you look up his bio and you uh, can see all the wonderful things and amazing things that John has done and learned and uh, so many admirable things, but um, possibly nothing more admirable than leaving the advertising agency <laughs> world and starting an organization called the New Citizenship Project, which over the last several years has 
been looking at reframing the way that people engage with different sectors and different shapes and sizes of power. And we've asked John uh, to come over here from England to share with us some work that he's been doing um, on the notion of food and citizenship. So without any further ado, I'd like to welcome John. Hello. I've, it's a real honor to be doing this last, uh, doing this last talk. And I want to thank uh, everybody, for, uh, Karen and Mitchell in particular, for inviting me and having me here. Um, the way I want to do these closing remarks is, is really to offer a, um, I think we're all feeling pretty full, metaphorically, of, of some wonderful kind of uh, stimulus and provocation over the last day and a half. Uh, and, and so I hope what I'm going to offer is, is something by way of a, of, of a, of a digestive of a kind of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of something that maybe will help uh, settle some of what you've heard over the last day and a half in, into, into a bit of a pattern, help you make a bit more sense of it. Uh, and so, and the way I want to do that is I want to share um, the story, the, 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 the model that we've developed uh, at the New Citizenship Project as, a, as the story we tell about where we are as a, as a society and, and the way we understand what's going on right now. Because it's a pretty confusing time. Um, and that story uh, is built out of uh, three simple little words, uh, subject, consumer, and citizen. And, and basically, this story is about saying the way we think society works isn't the way it works. The, the way we tend to think our society works is that we're, we're consumers and citizens and shareholders and parents and employers and employees and, and, and parents. And, and, and we move between these roles pretty seamlessly. We move between them at different times. And, and, and the, what we think is going on, actually, is that, is that it works slightly differently. That at any given time, there's one of these roles that sits up above all those and informs all of them with its logic, how we perform all of them with its logic. And this is a kind of quasi-historical narrative. So, so go back to the beginning, uh, uh, the, the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th. The, that, that dominant story, that sort of up here story, was something like the subject. So the right thing for us to do as individuals in society at that time was to, was to get what we were given, to keep our heads down, to kind of do as we were told, to, to, to just do our, do our duty. And if, and if everyone did that, then, then the best society would result. And that logic kind of fell apart in the early 20th century. And, 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 and coming out of the two world wars, a different story of, of, of who we are as individuals and what the right thing to do is kind of bubbled up and came through. And that's something like the consumer. So if subject is keep your head down, do as you're told, consumer is something like look out for number one. Get the best deal for yourself. Choose the best option for you from those that are offered. And if everyone does that, then the best society will result. It's a moral idea. And what we think is happening right now is that just as the subject story fell apart, the consumer story is falling apart now. That, that, that logic is kind of crumbling in on itself. And what's bubbling super excitingly is something like the citizen. A logic that says the right thing to do is actually to get involved, to shape the context of your own life, not, to, not, not just to choose between the options, but to shape what the options are. And, and just to say, so there are kind of two, two things that shift, two, two aspects of, of power, actually, that shift between these three, these three roles. As subjects, we have, we have no real uh, creative power. We, we just get what we're given. We have no real moral power. We, 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 ha we can't choose anything. We have, no, we have no agency. As consumers, we have more uh, power, more power, more creative power, but we have, we have the freedom to choose. We can choose between the options. And we have more moral power. We, have, we are good enough to know what's best for ourselves as individuals. As citizens, though, we have more 
even more power than that. We, we have the power not just to choose between the options to offer, that are offered, but to shape what those options are. And we have the, the, the opportunity not just to, we are good enough in ourselves, not just to know what's best for us as individuals, but to play a part in the discussion about what's best for the society as a whole. So we think this is what's going on, but, but let me tap in, because this, this is backed up. I'm a, I'm a kind of academic jack of all trades and master of none. And one of, the, one of the things that we've dug into is some of the social psychology around some of this. And I think this plays really powerfully to why the story of the consumer is kind of crumbling in on itself right now. And, and I want to tell you about two studies that we've, we've done. The first was, uh, we, it was a water resource dilemma. And this was a study first done by a team of uh, social psychologists at Northwestern University back in 2012. And what they did was they gave a, a, a resource dilemma to, to a group of people. They said, uh, right, you're one of four, household, four households dependent on a single well for your water supply, and that well is starting to run dry. And then they said, and then they asked two questions. So the, you, the well's starting to run dry, you need to use less water. They asked two questions. Firstly, to what extent are you prepared to use less water? And secondly, to what extent do you trust the other three households to use less water? Now, the clever bit is that for half the sample, they replaced the word household with the word consumer. So you're one of four consumers depending on a single well fuel supply. To what extent do you trust the other consumers? The people for whom the word is consumer are significantly less likely to trust each other and significantly less likely to be willing to compromise. A single word, unconsciously processed. We replicated this study with a sample of 2,000 people and had the same results. That, that this idea of who we are, is, is, even in a single word, can shape our behavior and our motivations. We've done, this, we've done loads of uh, similar studies. This, this data is from one where we asked uh, 3,000 people two questions. Firstly, to what extent do you think it's important to participate actively in society? And secondly, to what extent do you think it's important to be involved in your local community? The control group was simply asked those two questions. Uh, the citizen group, the 1,000 people, before they saw those two questions, we asked them, uh, to what extent do you think everyone is born equal? To, to what extent do you agree that everyone's born equal? And the consumer group, before they were asked these two questions, we asked them, to what extent do you agree it's important to find brands that fit your personality? This data is controlling for the extent of agreement with the prior question. So if you see the question, to what extent do you think it's important to find brands that fit your personality, you're then less likely to agree that it's important to, be involved, to, be, to participate actively in local society or be involved in your local community. Cor equally, if you see the question, to what extent do you ever agree everyone's born equal, you're more likely to agree with those questions. And, and what we do, what we say with this is, we are, we think about where we are. I, I worked in the advertising industry for a decade, and, 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 and the question I came to ask myself was, what are we doing to ourselves when we tell ourselves we're consumers something like 3,000 odd times a day? We surround ourselves with this story, and we tell it to ourselves in organizations as well. And when we tell ourselves, when we speak about people, even in rooms like this, as, uh, when we speak about people as consumers, we're setting ourselves on a path that means we can't possibly imagine what people could really do. We're setting ourselves on a path that limits what people can do. And then we speak to people in that way, and then they respond like this. We, we condition, we condition the, the response that's the worst of people. And this is why we're in this spiral right now, I believe. But this is the hopeful part. Uh, that this is not, and, this, and it, it's reflected slightly in this data maybe, like the gap between uh, the, the control group and the citizen group is relatively small. And, and this taps into the, the idea and, and a big revolution that's going on in our understanding of human nature right now, that, that actually people are, people are fundamentally empathic. People are, people are driven by, as much by empathy and collaboration as by competition and status. We have a new story that's building, and it's coming out of some funny places. Has anyone seen this image before? Um, 
This comes from uh, a TED talk that became very famous uh, by a guy called Franz de Waal, who's an animal behavior specialist. And in this talk, uh, what this, uh, this image is from a study that was published under the title, Monkeys Demand Equal Pay for Equal Work. And it's a beautiful thing. I highly recommend watching it. Basically, very short version of what happens. Two capuchin monkeys, uh, the first, uh, they do a task and get given a reward. The first hands a stone through the window and is given a piece of cucumber, eats the cucumber. Second monkey hands a stone through the window and is given a grape, eats the grape. Now, capuchin monkeys prefer grapes to cucumber, and they've seen each other. Go back to the first monkey, hands a stone through the window, is given cucumber again. This time, looks at cucumber, throws cucumber back at researcher. <laughs> But the fascinating thing is that in a significant proportion of the experiments, the monkey given the grape starts to refuse the grape. Solidarity among monkeys. <laughs> and this, it's a, it's a phenomenal thing. When you, so when I was developing these ideas, when we're starting to play around with this and go, what's going on here? What, what are we doing to ourselves with this work? Sitting at a desk in an advertising agency. And I, I still, a lot, some of my best friends, I don't, I don't celebrate leaving those things behind in too many ways, but, but there was a particular boss of mine who wasn't the most constructive supporter of my work. And, and what he said to me was, at one point was, John, you've got to give up on this stuff. Uh, humans are just nasty monkeys. Consumerism is evolution. And what I can say to him now is not even monkeys are just nasty monkeys. Like, this is, it's a beautiful thing for me. So, but, but, but if this is some sort of uh, theoretical evidence that there's something in, human in humanity that is, that is bigger and better than the idea of the consumer, the most impactful stuff is when we look out into the world and see that this is actually happening. I'm not making a moral argument, I'm making a trend argument. But it, and that's not to say we don't have to do something about it, but it is something that's going on. And we tend to look at this uh, in three different ways across communities that are sort of starting to self-organize and, and see themselves as, as, and come together as citizens to refuse to wait for, for government structures to, to move for them, but actually to organize for themselves. Government and the sort of phenomenon of participatory democracy that's bubbling up around the world, then the moments when governments actually start to, and governance structures start to reach out to those people and create the frameworks for that impact to be bigger. And in the world of business, where actually there's a, there's a much more powerful business model in this way of thinking of people. And I just wanted to highlight a couple of the, my favorite kind of trend spot examples. Uh, firstly, from outside, across those three, firstly from outside the feed industry and then within the feed industry. So my first, uh, I, and uh, Ashley, I, I tinkered with the, the way I wanted to tell this story uh, late notice, and Ashley, uh, who's been arranging a lot of this, was, uh, said, I, I'm going to let you get away with it because you've put a picture of David Bowie in. So um, this is, this, and this is, the, this is one, uh, the, this, the Brixton £10 note, and this, this for me is a, a, the, the phenomenon of local currency. There are now something like 4,000 local currencies, complementary currencies in circulation around the world. And the way complementary currencies work, local currencies work, is that they're pegged against the, the national currency at a favorable exchange rate that, that, that means that, it, that sort of combats the economies of scale and means that you can shop in your local community at the same economic personal impact, but, but it retains the money circulating in the local economy and sustains that, sustains that economy. And people are just creating these things. There's, they're not waiting for any structure to happen. They're, they're self-organizing. They're, they're, they're taking the power to shape the, shape the structures of their lives into their own hands. In food, um, that we've heard already this in the last day and a half about some phenomenal examples of, of exactly this kind of self-organizing. I mean, having Phil Jones and, and, uh, on the stage, is a, is a, he embodies it in a lot of ways. But, but the, the, my favorite, the one I wanted to share with you is, this is the Incredible Edible Network, the, uh, a, 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 a sort of self-generating network of, of, of um, 
grassroots community activists that, who are planting public, creating public food on public land, planting, planting fruit and vegetables in, in public land around in, in villages and towns around the world. And it started in, in, a, in a working class uh, uh, town in, in northern England um, where, where the, 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 the sort of deprivation is pretty high and, 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 the, and has been the root of some of the, the political upheaval that you've seen your own version of over here. And it's a very different response to that. Moving into um, formal, formal politics and, and the, the sort of rise of participatory democracy, my favorite example from outside the feed system is this project in, in Iceland called Better Reykjavik. Um, it's essentially a really simple online forum where, people, where any citizen of Reykjavik can propose an idea for how the city could be better. Uh, and people upvote and downvote and chip in their own ideas. Uh, the, the, the fascinating thing about this is, is uh, that there's an explicit contract with the city administration where 15 ideas a month are debated by the city council in a, in a special session of the, of the council with a predisposition that they will be enacted. So there is a meaningful contract of power between the citizen and, and their ideas. And we were hearing about this from Jennifer Kuzma earlier, that the, this thing that, that in food policy that in, the, in the States and, and in the UK as well, there may be public engagement. There's relatively few contracts of power. That's different in Better Reykjavik. And as a result, something like 70% of the population of the city have participated in this platform. In food, we've heard, we've talked about, um, Olivier was talking, uh, in his video, uh, Link was talking about food policy councils. So again, Phil Jones, a representative of Detroit Food Policy Council. We've seen so many of these. Uh, my favorite example that, that built on those is, is the story behind the, the mandate for a new food policy, new holistic food policy for Canada, which grew out of the Food Policy Council's network in Canada doubled into a series of kitchen table talks around the country, and then, a, and then a people's food policy called Resetting the Table, and then a campaign called Eat, Think, Vote, where, where, which mobilized people to challenge their representatives in, in the forthcoming election to prioritize a, a new holistic food policy for Canada, and came through as, as one of the first actions that Justin Trudeau took. Into business, and I wanted to mention the B Corporation movement. As, as, and, and in business, this, this shift in logic from consumer to citizen is at the level of business and also at the level of the relationship between business and its customers. Businesses, as, as consumers of society, the logic is to, that your role, the right thing to do, the res responsibility of business is to maximize its profits. In this world, in this world of businesses, citizens in society, the responsibility of businesses is to sustain the communities that they're part of. And that's what B corporations, with the logic of having to nominate a purpose that you exist to serve beyond profit, you reorient this, the entire structure of business to say profit is a means to fulfilling purpose rather than vice versa. The quick story I wanted to tell in the context of food is one of my favorite organizations. You guys are going to be seeing a lot more of them over here. They've just, uh, just moved across the Atlantic. Uh, Brewdog, we've heard a bit about the craft beer phenomenon. Uh, Brewdog is a wonderful, uh, fascinating organization. They effectively um, invented uh, the concept of equity crowdfunding back in 2007 before any of the platforms existed. And they're, they're owned by, um, they've raised now, they're into their fifth equity crowdfunding round. They've raised something like 40 million pounds through this, through, through this model. Uh, and, and the fascinating, what they do though is they speak to, they don't see people as customers or as consumers, they see people as participants in their mission to make other people about, as passionate about great craft beer as we are. They run uh, training courses for a, for a qualification called the Cicerone, 
which uh, is like a sommelier, but for beer. They, uh, they have an annual general meeting uh, of all these, all these people who've bought into this, uh, into this equity uh, crowdfunding scheme. Uh, they call it annual general mayhem. It's 6,000 people descend on a brewery in, uh, on the brewery in, in Scotland every year uh, and have an enormous party, but they also do the, uh, the business of an AGM. They see these people actually as their, as their stakeholders, as their participants. They rethink the whole structures. So these are just a couple of examples, and there are many, many more that I could share. But, but what, I want to, what I want to leave you with is just a, maybe a, a, an action for the, that you might take as one thing to take away with you that's a really simple start point in, in being part of this new story, and a question that you can think about. And the action is this. Wherever you possibly can, don't use the word consumer. I'm not saying people don't consume, but there is a really vital difference between the verb and the noun. We, we can be citizens who consume, but when we become consumers who might or might not vote, that's a totally different orientation to society, and it's a really dangerous one. So challenge yourself. Am I using the language that I should? Can I, can I break out? Can I talk about people? I don't insist you use the word citizen, but don't use the word consumer if you possibly can. A few, few prompts just to think about. We, we have this table in our report where we talk about the shift from subject consumer citizen. Subjects are dependent, consumers into independent, citizens interdependent. Subjects have stuff done to them, consumers have stuff done for them, citizens have stuff, do stuff with you. Subjects obey, consumers demand, citizens participate, receive, choose, create. And the role of organizations in a subject era to command, in a consumer era to serve, in a citizen era to facilitate. I just, it springs to mind that there, there, there's a um, Burundian saying that I find very powerful and we use in our work an awful lot of the time, which is that anything you do for me without me, you do to me. And I think we could all do with remembering that. Finally, uh, this, is the, this is our kind of way of saying, I'm not naive. I, I know that we live in a moment, and I said at the beginning, we live in a moment of deep uncertainty and, and, and big change. I believe that we are currently somewhere in this line where the, where the consumer error is coming down, but it's still the dominant story, the, 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 the story we live in, the story we're surrounded by is still the story of the consumer, but there is something forming. And the opportunity for us all is to jump off, that, jump off that yellow curve and onto that pink curve and be part of something different. And the question I wanted to leave you with to, to maybe help you think about how you might do that is what would I do and what would my organization do if we really, really believed that people are citizens, not just consumers? If we believe that people could, can, and want to, in, in, their heart of our, in, in the deepest of human nature, everyone can and wants to participate in, in shaping a better society rather than believing that people are fundamentally selfish and lazy. Challenge yourself to hold that thought and see what you would do with it. I'm going to leave you um, very last thing with a, a quote that, um, uh, from a woman called Rebecca Solnit who wrote a fam fabulous book called Hope in the Dark, which Tunde's talk just made me think about so much about the difference between optimism and pessimism and the space between. And she talks about the space between as being hope. And she says, hope locates itself in the premises that we don't know what will happen, and that in the spaciousness of uncertainty is room to act. When you recognize uncertainty, you recognize that you may be able to influence the outcomes, you alone or you in concert with a few dozen or several million others. Hope is an embrace of the unknown and the unknowable, an alternative an alternative to the certainty of both optimists and pessimists. Optimists think it will all be fine without our involvement. Pessimists adopt the opposite position. Both excuse themselves from acting. It is the belief that what we do matters even though how and when it may matter, 
who and what it may impact are not things that we can know beforehand. Thank you very much for having me.